This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, before we start, I just want to tell you today's episode is going to be pretty different. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the White Hotel in Brooklyn as part of the Work by Work on-air festival. It was a really cool experience. I mean, throughout this four-day extravaganza, presenters like me would sit on a couch in a salon in the back of the lobby. I had a microphone, speakers, and a laptop while the audience stood and sat around me. And next to me in these big comfy chairs were my three panelists. We'll hear from them in a while, but first... I want to play you the presentation I did on Will Eisner, the legendary comics artist who would have been 100 years old this week. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky, live at the White Hotel as part of the Work by Work On Air Festival. Welcome to everybody here and everyone listening online. So March 6, 2017 is the centennial of Will Eisner. A hundred years ago, the legendary comics writer and artist was born in this neighborhood, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Now, Eisner liked to say that he was there when comics were born, but he was being way too modest. Eisner was there when comics learned to walk. He was there when comics had its bar mitzvah. He was there at comics' wedding. In fact, if you look at every major turning point in the life of comics, Will Eisner played a key role, even though he was an outsider for most of his career. So now, Eisner was born in this neighborhood, but his family moved to the Bronx. He went to high school with Bob Kane, the guy who created Batman, or at least took credit for creating Batman, which is a whole other story. Now, Eisner graduated high school in the Great Depression, so he had to grow up fast. At the age of 19, he created his own studio with a guy named Jerry Iger. They were actually in a position to reject Superman when Siegel and Schuster were pitching Superman around town. Now, in his defense, Eisner never really cared for those, quote, costumed characters, as they were known back then. But when Superman was a huge hit, Every studio in town was under pressure to have their own costumed character. So Eisner created one, but he did it on his own terms. Will Eisner's The Spirit was a vigilante detective. He wore a mask like Zorro and a fedora, a trench coat, and gloves to hide his true identity as Denny Colt, the ex-cop who faked his own death. Now, at first, The Spirit fell into the typical conventions of the detective genre. Some of the stuff, the early stuff, is dated. In fact, the spirit had a sidekick who was black, who was a stereotype that we would find fairly offensive today named Ebony White. And I asked Paul Levitz about that, who wrote a book about Eisner. The probability that he had personal friendship with a person of color in 1941 when he created Ebony is really close to zero. But that changed with World War II. Eisner was sent to Washington to draw manuals for the Pentagon. He comes back having met a much wider variety of people, having experienced other cities, certainly other kinds of social environments. He's probably much better read by the time he comes back. That's a much richer set of paints to make his tapestry with. He also becomes a more confident storyteller. In fact, after the war, he almost starts to lose interest in his main character, the spirit, and becomes really interested in the poor guys that the spirit is trying to save. And sometimes the spirit doesn't save them. Eisner was not trying to emulate Batman at this point. He wanted to be O. Henry. And he could experiment with the format because the spirit came embedded in newspapers that people were already going to buy. Eisner owned the rights to his own character, which was practically unheard of. 
So he didn't have to answer to anyone. Will was to comics what you know Orson Welles was to early movies. That is Bob Andelman, who also wrote a book about Eisner. He he captured shadow and light. He the angles that he took on things were different. The spirit, the logo on on the the front of every spirit comic was always different. It, it had a different look every single week. I compose the page as as a single unit itself, almost like music. And this is Will Eisner himself from a 1987 documentary. I want to convey tears. I want to convey anger. I want to convey the subtleties that people who write with words only are able to convey more easily. Eisner's bullpen was a rotating who's who of artists, from Jack Kirby to Jules Pfeiffer. One of his early employees was Al Jaffe, who went on to create the fold-ins in the back of Mad Magazine. Remember those? Jaffe is still drawing for Mad. He is 96 years old this month, and he just doesn't work on deadline anymore. I take as much time as, as, as is needed. Social Security helps me get through. Jaffe still remembers the first day he went to Eisner's studio, which was in a fancy residential building in Midtown. Now, Jaffe came from the same kind of neighborhood as Eisner, so he saw Eisner as the kid who had made it. You know, I, I felt like a big shot when I walked into the, that place, you know. It's, it was great to come out of the slum areas of the Bronx. Jaffe got the job by pitching an idea about a pathetic superhero called Inferior Man. But Jaffe struggled to flesh out the story, and he wasn't impressing his boss. His mind was working at a mile a minute. Will would sit down with me, and he'd say, Oh, I've got a great idea for Inferior Man. Inferior Man is called in because someone has stolen the Brooklyn Bridge. And you have to work out how uh, this is an optical illusion. And he was throwing out a lot of scientific uh, gobbledygook at me. And it was all very clever. And I did it, but I, I don't think that I did it successfully, because if Will did this, it probably would have been terrific. Now, Eisner had one ambition. He wanted comics to be taken seriously. Here he is again from that 1980s documentary. I've always been annoyed from the very first day of my involvement in comics of the use of the word comics. Because comics is a misnomer. Comics should not be comical. They should not be necessarily uh, funny, as in the case of funny papers. This is a valid medium of expression, equal in respectability, if you will, to words without pictures or to film. But comics were not getting that kind of respect. And Paul Levitt says by 1951, Eisner was feeling burnt out. He gives up the spirit right at the point where comics in general are being pounded the uh, moral crisis of comics are causing all the juvenile delinquency of America. He was also married for a couple of years at that point with a father-in-law who still was asking him if he was going to get a real job one of these days. So Eisner closed the studio, became a businessman drawing educational comics for the military, and eventually started teaching. If his life were a movie, we'd fade to black now. The scrappy kid from the tenements had been transformed into the quintessential suburban family man of the 1950s. The screen would go dark for a few moments, and then we'd see the words, 20 years later. Now imagine it's 1971. 
were at one of the first Comic Cons ever in New York. A long-haired hippie named Dennis Kitchen is looking through a box of old comics when a French historian approaches him and says, And he said, uh, Mr. Will Eisner, he is looking for you. And I assured him he was mistaken, and he assured me he was not. So who is Dennis Kitchen at this point? He was running Kitchen Sink Press. They published underground artists like R. Crumb and Art Spiegelman. The only place they could distribute their work back then was in head shops, which we don't know is slang for bong paraphernalia stores. So Kitchen followed the Frenchman all the way up to a private suite, and there was the legend himself, Will Eisner. I saw the opportunity, I thought maybe the only opportunity to ever talk to Will, and so I, I tried to get a word in edgewise and ask him about the old days, but he made very short shrift of that, and he really was interested in what our mode of distribution was, the fact that artists received uh, royalties, not flat rates, the fact that our artists retained their copyright and kept their original art. These are all very radical notions to a guy who had come up through a very different kind of business model. And at this point, Kitchen realizes that Eisner has never read an underground comic. He's only heard about them. So they went down to the convention floor. And I was going to selectively pick something out, but Will grabbed one at random, which was an unfortunate choice from my perspective. I think it was zap number two, maybe. Um, I know he opened it up, and there was an S. Clay Wilson page. And he looked at it, and he blanched, and he put it down. And he said something like, oh, dear, or, oh, my. <laughs> and I realized then we had a, a generational uh, moment. I asked Dennis Kitchen if he could describe that comic in Will Eisner's hands. Yeah, as I recall, it was uh, two pirates, and one pirate uh, literally takes a sword and slices the, the penis off another pirate, put a fork in it, and started to eat it, and he said, the tip tastes best. And uh, I thought, well, it's probably the last time I ever see or speak to Will Eisner again, but I had his <laughs> business card, and I followed up, and I said, look... Um, what you picked out was, you know, an example of how outrageous an underground can be. But I said it's not necessarily typical. So I said, here's a half a dozen or so that you might enjoy more. And it turned out he did. Now, this is fascinating to me because a lot of guys of Eisner's generation felt alienated by the counterculture. But he was endlessly curious. So Kitchen invited him to join Kitchen Sink Press. This means the spirit which used to come embedded in major newspapers around the country, would be distributed in bong shops. Eisner's all for it. The hippies at the head shops were a little more skeptical. A lot of the people behind the counter who were ordering these things would scratch their head and say, what the hell is this? You know, this isn't hip and with it. And I would just have to say, uh, you know, look, why don't you read it? It's, it's great stuff. But Kitchen didn't know that something else was fueling Eisner's return to comics. A few years beforehand, Will and his wife Anne had suffered a terrible loss. Their teenage daughter, Alice, had died of leukemia. They, they had two children, and the, the daughter suddenly died, and then the son, who was slightly older, became schizophrenic, and they effectively lost him as well. He was estranged from them for many years. And so when you have two children and suddenly you have no children, uh, that's tough for any parent to first of all, survive, and then to be able to easily talk about. Bob Endelman says at first the Eisners didn't want to talk about it. Over time, uh, Will and Ann just started putting away all the pictures of their children. 
So people who met them after this time, never, some of them never even knew that they had children. But the best way for Eisner to process his grief was through art. He began drawing a series of short stories called A Contract with God. They all took place in the same 1930s tenement building, which was very similar to the one that Eisner grew up in. But this was not sepia-toned nostalgia. It was dark. The first story was about a rabbi who tried to be a good man because he thought he had a contract with God. But when his daughter died, the rabbi fell apart, became a very cynical businessman. Paul Levitz was one of those friends who didn't know the true story behind a contract with God and wouldn't for many years. Contract is an absolutely different book when you know about Alice's story than it is if you don't. But Eisner was on a mission to have his new work distributed like a novel. Again, here's Dennis Kitchen. And he apologized for not offering it to me. He said, uh, at the time I was in Wisconsin, uh, central Wisconsin, my address was number two Swamp Road. And he said to me, Dennis, um, this is a book that needs a Park Avenue address, not a Swamp Road address. When Eisner pitched the book to publishers in Manhattan, he described it using a relatively obscure term. He sold it as a, quote, graphic novel. When the book came out in 1978, Eisner was so excited, he went to this fancy bookstore just to see it on the shelves. Again, here's Bob Andelman. They can't find it. And they said, well, maybe it's in this section, or maybe it's in that section. Maybe, Well, it, it turned out uh, it was nowhere because they couldn't figure out, <laughs> you know, it, it's comics, but it's not comics. And there's a, there's a little nudity in it, so they can't put it with the Beetle Bailey. And uh, it's religious, but it's not religious. And ultimately, they just put it in the back. But it wasn't ignored, certainly not by comic book writers like Paul Levitz, who would eventually become president of DC Comics. And there's a young generation of creators who look at it because it's Will Eisner. He's one of the greats of the field. Eisner's doing this? This is an old person. The book didn't sell any significant numbers, but the people that it touched, the Frank Millers and Neil Gaiman's and Alan Moore's, who would go on to be the next generation of driving forces in comics in many ways, it had a very powerful effect on In fact, Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen and V for Vendetta, among many other great books, said, Eisner is the single person most responsible for giving comics its brains. Now, I said at the beginning that Eisner was there at every major turning point in the life of comics. He was also literally there on stage at the Eisner Awards, the industry's highest honor, meeting the rising stars and encouraging them to experiment as much as possible. By the time he died in 2005, Will Eisner had produced more than a dozen graphic novels since A Contract with God had come out. What is fatherhood? It's partly the biological act, but an awful lot of it is helping the kid grow up. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone with a larger contribution to the growing up of the graphic novel, defining the aspirations of it than Will. He missed by an instant the full respectability. He dies just at the moment that we get the New York Times bestseller list of graphic books that we get graphic novels reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review, the MacArthur Awards that now have been won by a handful of cartoonists. But he gets us to the promised land, and he can see it's there. He knows what it is. 
he'd get a kick out of a lot of what's going on. In a moment, my expert panel discusses the impact that Will Eisner has had on the comic book industry and even the way that artists draw now. Last month, I told you about the hashtag Tripod, which is a campaign to raise awareness of podcasts in general. Now, I want to tell you about a podcast that you should try, Gastropod. It's a show about food in the same way that this show is about sci-fi and fantasy. In other words, it's about a lot more. The two hosts, Cynthia Graber and Nikki Twilley, call on the expertise of scientists, historians, and chefs, but also agricultural detectives and former sex shop managers. They explore things like whether adding salt to your food is really going to kill you, and the science behind how bubbles get into seltzer. New episodes are served up every other week. You can subscribe to Gastropod in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to my live show, the Work by Work Festival. So after the presentation, I welcome my panelists. Danny Fingeroth is a former writer and editor for Marvel Comics. He writes a lot about comics from a psychological and sociological perspective. He also runs Will Eisner Week every March. This year is a big one. Joan Hilty is a writer, artist, and former editor at DC Comics. She's now a comics editor at Nickelodeon and runs a production company called Page Turner. And finally, Dean Haspiel is a comic book artist who's worked with indies and big publishing houses. And he also self-publishes a comic about a reluctant Brooklyn superhero called The Red Hook. So let's start where we left off. What would Eisner think of graphic novels today? Would he be thrilled or would he say, God, we have so much further, so much further still to go? I mean, I think that, you know... I, you know, I, I hate speaking for someone else, especially yeah, when they're yeah, not yeah. around. Go ahead. Dean. But I'll Go do ahead. it anyway. <laughs> um, are you kidding me? He would love this. Now, if, if yeah. part of what his mantra was to take it seriously, yeah. yes, comics are being taken seriously. And, and so he won that battle. Uh, I did get to meet him once at the Small Press Expo in the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, Diana Schutz, who's an editor at Dark Horse Comics, was working with him and knew him. And she was uh, targeting certain artists and she brought him over to me, and I was like in shock. Here's a hero, right? Here's a, mm -hmm. go a comics god, as it were. And he's flipping through a comic I had done back then, and uh, he looks a few pages, he looks at me, and he pumps his fist, and he says, kid, you're the future of comics. And I sat there, like, gobsmacked and in awe <laughs> with this burden, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then I said, thank you very much, and then, like, Literally five minutes later, down another row, I heard, you know, in the background, kid, you're the future of comics. <laughs> but that's what was great about Will Eisner was his encouragement of the form and just getting people to continue doing this thing that we do. Where do you see, where do you see Eisner's visual style influence today in terms of either the staging, the lighting, his incredibly expressive style of drawing? It, it, it's so much a part of comics vocabulary. People don't even know. It's like Eisner and Kirby, who's Centennials also this year. They did, they developed they invented the language of of comics, and with with Eisner he did it tw at least twice, you know, with the spirit kind of using a cinematic Orson Welles, German expressionist expressionistic kind of uh, very dramatic thing, and then with the later graphic novels with kind of almost sitting the camera in the fourth row of the orchestra and shooting. Directly, so I, mean, I think you know he's one of like the maybe five or six figures that even if you've never read Eisner, you're influenced by Eisner. Hmm. Somebody once asked me, like, 
what did you get from working with uh, Harvey Pekar in American Splendor and, and the graph analysis? And, I, and I, I had to think about that a lot, and I realized, oh, it, it's his ability to observe. And I feel like Eisner not only had the ab ability to observe uh, and convey observation, but more importantly, human behavior. You know, a lot of comic books are just, you know, action or point A to point B, but he would stop and cinematically convey uh, with certain kind of pacing, human behavior, the body kind of crunching up or feeling. He could show feelings. But also the other thing I got from him was how uh, his font, I, I call it, his kind of lettering style, uh, especially titles like The Spirit, would become landscapes. Mm. Uh, they would carve out mazes uh, in the city. And, and then ultimately the city was also a character in a lot of his stories. And I got that from him. Yeah, and, and I fundamentally agree with both of you in that I, when I think about his influence, I don't think about people working in his style so much as it's sort of like that Norman Rockwell painting family tree. Mm -hmm. Remember the famous one where it's, it's a painting of a family tree and Rockwell very famously used the same model for either the male or the female ancestor throughout the entire... And that's sort of how Eisner's legacy has worked is that you don't necessarily see that people are influenced by his style so much as... as you know, his vocabulary became theirs. So I think of, you know, when I think of the, the visual style, I guess I think of the flowing layouts and the, the ink work of somebody like Jillian Tamaki or Craig Thompson. Mm -hmm. But I also think of the tendency to create like ethnic, like culturally ethnic urban worlds, mm. like the, the, uh, the worlds of Hoppers and Palomar by the Hernandez brothers in Love and Rockets, mm -hmm. or, or Ben Kachor's comics about the urban landscape. Like you said, Eisner like, believed in making the city a character, mm -hmm. and he believed in, you know, he was a product of his time. He didn't, his, his cast themselves weren't so diverse, but, but he, you know, he, he created cities that were born of those, you know, immigrant Irish and Jewish communities. And people, I think, have been inspired by that, however indirectly. And his comics on. showed time and celebrated decay and hmm. history, you know, when you look at his work. Well, his, his central theme that he always talked about was survival yeah. on, whatever, on whatever level. And, and that informed everything. You know, he came up very poor and then in the Depression. And I think everything that was around him was about how do you survive economic hard times? How do you survive a world war? How do you survive being in a medium that's, a, that's attacked and marginalized and demeaned? You know, so, but I mean... And also dysfunctional uh, uh, families, too. I mean, there's in contact with yeah. God. I mean, that was the biggest surprise for me when I, I hadn't read it in a long time and I reread it and just, just how dark those family dynamics are and just like, how do you tough. emotionally survive, you know, poverty? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, one of my favorite Will anecdotes is in an article, I think uh, the author David Haydu was interviewing Will, and uh, they were in a Barnes & Noble, and Haydu says to Will, look, there's a Will Eisner, not only is there a graphic novel section, but in the graphic novel section, there's a Will Eisner section, isn't that incredible? And Will goes, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but, I, but I should be over there in literature with Roth and Malamud. Uh, yeah. You know, that, so... That was his aspiration. Uh, I think he achieved it. Yeah, and it's funny we're saying too about body language because ever since since I've been working on this this you know working on this uh, piece and reading so much of him, I feel like I'm starting to notice Eisner characters on the street. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> like that guy's got a story just yeah. from his body language, yeah. the way he holds his clothes hang off of him. Yeah. I think another thing that uh, 
Eisner got criticized for, which I, which I am attracted to and connects with me, is his, his sentimentality. He was very sentimental. It's even sen- when it's things were sad, but it, but it gets pretty, but it gets dark. I well, mean, I didn't it, know this about until just now about yeah. his kids. This new, yeah. oh, news really? to me. Oh, really? And so, so many other things make sense Holy suddenly God, yeah. now because yeah. of that. Hmm. You know? Well, and 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 his his people did act. They were dramatic. They just like you saw every line of their face. And when you talk about body language, this is almost to me a. a, a a way in which he critiqued traditional panel layouts, you sometimes felt like his characters were like hunching, like trying to fit themselves within panel layouts. Like they would literally bend over trying to stay within the panel and their energy was just coming off the page. They couldn't actually do it. He also seems to me broke the whole idea of the panel. I mean, there's the one spirit comic from the 40s where it's sort of like the apartment building and you sort of follow all the characters as they're going from the top floor to the bottom floor. And I thought... I saw Chris Ware do that like 10 years ago, and I thought that was revolutionary. Well, well, for Will, the spirit was a big opportunity to break out of the you know, monthly comic book ghetto. Theater. There's a lot of theater in his work. Well, his, fa- his father was a, a scene designer in the Yiddish theater, and then in Catholic churches, too, somehow. I'm not sure how yeah. that... I think, I think it's, he had to do it to survive. That's so interesting. Um, I always love that. I also love this quote of Alan Moore's that Will Eisner gave comics its brains. So, what do you think that means in terms of his storytelling, or or is did was it the kind of themes that he felt like comics could grapple with? When I think of his, not the brain, I think he is the heart of <laughs> comics. You know, like that's what I feel when I think of Will Eisner. It's more of the heart than the brain. You know, but I can understand Alan Moore's iteration of that you know and you know it is still a struggle like we're still not there yet i still have to explain to people all the time why we call them graphic novels when half the time they're nonfiction. you know i still have to you know deal with people who are like i don't understand how i w- read the words and the pictures together it's just not for everybody and it's it's still a struggle and in that way but he sort of creates our floor uh well let's open this up for questions i mean does anyone here have uh have questions about for our panelists Okay. Okay. Since we're sitting here in Williamsburg, he said that he was from Williamsburg. I was wondering if there is any relationship between the geographic location and the style of the stories. Is he though? I was looking at you well, when he said Williamsburg. You know, it's it's ambiguous. He was he grew up in the Bronx, but it, it, it was probably born in Brooklyn. That, that that that's pretty. I think we've. I don't know. I don't know if we know that it was Williamsburg specifically. I think I'd read that he thought he was born in Williamsburg, but, but, but he was not entirely right. sure. Well, those were the, again, those are the days when you would get, like, free rent. So you'd live in a place till the free rent was up, and then you'd move to the next place. But yeah, he did... Wait, 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 time out. Wait, what? <laughs> those were the days of free rent? Well, free, like, two months free rent. The landlord would give free rent. When the subways were first built and people would come out to crazy places like Brooklyn and the Bronx... You would get a free month or two rent as a bribe to move into a place. I mean, I get it now, but that's that's yeah. kind of awesome. It's <laughs> well, I don't think it was a preferred way to live. No, I think, no, I, no. you know, oh, the free rent is up. I'm, you live I'm, out of a bag at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the era. Of, that's the era of like a tree grows in Brooklyn. Um, right. You right. know. Where yeah, it's not a not and a and I mean I really recommend like his it, it can be tricky to corral and look at all the the '70s stuff he did, but but the detail of of the streets and the build, especially because he did a lot of little short form things about New York, city. New Yorker, right? He did the building, right. he did city people notebook, and they were short right. stories, and they would take place like. You know, he would he would tell the short story of a street. He would tell the short story of an interaction on the subway, and they are a time capsule of pretty much New York 
urban New York in any borough, just these gorgeous buildings. The, the, he drew the old elevated line beautifully, the old subways with the actual straps, interiors of buildings with the original pressed tin ceilings. I mean, the, the level of detail is phenomenal. Almost like an archivist. I mean, these beautiful vignettes, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, I asked Al Jaffe, yeah. too, about that. The, the city of the spirit, I was, saying, I was asking him, did it feel like the Bronx? Did it feel like Manhattan to you? And he just said, nah, it just felt like some mythical city place. Mm. But I think that very much changed as he got older and really had, you know, wanted to talk about his childhood. Well, I think these, there are certain spirit stories. The spirit story, 10 minutes, and a, and a story called Heat, which is about the spirit... Uh, is injured and he's just—it's the middle of July and he's lying, dying in an alley in in a between Bronx tenements, and kids are playing stickball and jump rope and those are real precursors to Contract with God and and the name of the game and to the heart of the storm, which I, I to, to me the heart of the storm is like the the best of the graphic novels. That's that's a really powerful memoir. The spirit might could it sometimes get generic and he did have you know, assistants working with him, so yeah. maybe they didn't always convey the heart and soul he did, but he was pretty much a love, uh, very often love letters to New York. Yeah, and also, too, I love the Spirit comics when he started working with Dennis Kitchen and the Spirit comes back in the early 70s, and he still looks the same in the way that Don Draper at the end of Mad Men looks exactly like <laughs> he did at the beginning of Mad Men, but, I mean, the world, it's like he is absolutely observing. I mean, you just suddenly felt like you just fell into a den of hippies, of dirty hippie <laughs> cartoonists, and there's a great, that first cover is where they're all drawing and they're like, excited to curse. They've got, like, beards and tons of hair, and then the old Comiscus Commissioner Dolan says, like, I'm going to arrest them all, Spirit and Spirit. <laughs> Spirit goes, for what? <laughs> That's like a great kind of cross-generational moment. Well, I think, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, obviously Will had, you know, he had the tragic tales of his children, but I think he and Kirby and Stan Lee and a lot of those, I think a lot of them were almost trying to work through their relationships with their baby boom generation children. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, I think we, again, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I think we have to give him a lot of credit for rising above what he came from, which was a a work for higher industry where, frankly, there wasn't necessarily always a heavy level of artistic detail when you were grinding out either Superman or Wonder Man or all due respect, early like Batman and Wonder Woman, you know, was was not all that detail oriented. Mm -hmm. Everything looked very generic because you were just trying to bang it out. And he really rose above that. A and B, if there is one industry that is guilty of as we age, we get bitchier and bitchier about like how things used to be like this. Comics is so guilty of that. <laughs> like the the longer we're in it, you know, the more. And he he was never like that. He was never like it's not like it used to be. These kids today, he's you know, he was just never like that. Look at how he treated Dennis Kitchen. Yeah, you know? I mean, if you're asking what's his biggest influence, it's not outside of comics necessarily. Although omnisciently, it may be through you know, the executives that took, take over, you know, the Hollywood desks and green light stories these days, you know, he, he might be uh, in that lineup of, of creators that we all dig or dug, but it's inside the industry. It, it is, it encourages a guy like me to think outside of the work for hire box and encourages a, a, a cat like me who like, you know, was reading Harvey Picard, but also Will Eisner and Chester Brown and whoever, you know, Crumb and so on and so forth to make your own comics. And, and, to be innovative at 60, you know, like, I'm going to be 50 in May. I hope I'm just starting, you know. I'm just starting right now. You know, I've been doing this for many years. I plan to keep moving forward and keep pushing because the examples of, Will, like, Will Eisner, 
you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like in some way artistic integrity is is partially his uh, his legacy for me. I mean, just in terms of, and I think that's probably why these guys like Art Spiegelman and Art Crumb were able to look at him and what he did in the 40s and just say, like, I see what you were doing. That was amazing. You were doing your own thing. You own your own work. And he looks at them and says, I see what you're doing too, you know? And I think that he was a real artist artist in that sense. Well, I think, and he also, I think he... He made a simple but brilliant realization, which was, okay, kids liked comics in the 40s and 50s. Those same people are now adults. They are literate in how to read comics and comics grammar and syntax. Maybe they'd like something more mature told in that same medium. Mm. Now that seems obvious. It wasn't so obvious then, and that... What a brilliant thing you to realize. Birth, birth a comics reader and keep a comics reader. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting, the, uh, I'm getting the, the, the twirling fingers, which means it's time to wrap up. Um, all right. That is it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for coming here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having us. Coming to the Work by Work On Air Festival, a pop-up live streaming radio lounge exploring creativity and storytelling at the White Hotel in Brooklyn. Special thanks to Danny Fingeroff, Jones Hilty, Dean Haspiel, Paul Levitz, Dennis Kitchen, Bob Andelman, and Al Jaffe. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweet at Emalinsky. My website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.